Andre Segovia Show. Happy July! Can you believe that? We are officially more than halfway through 2019. So that means Christmas is only six months away. A lot of people are excited about Christmas as of January. Like, dude, we're still in Christmas, but whatever. You know, it's, uh, to, to some people, they, they look forward to the end of the year. And as for someone that deals in real estate and finances, it means it's the end of the fiscal year, um, June 30th. So now we enter the new fiscal year for 2020. That means the new cars are about to roll out, and I got my eye on a doozy, so I'll see how that goes. Now, uh, before I dive into this episode, it is a news roundup segment. I can't believe how quickly this one came around, but uh, there's just so much that, uh, that went on towards the latter end of June that I need to break up in, in, into two episodes, uh, because it's the news was really dry at the beginning. I didn't think I was going to have any material for this episode, honestly. But then the latter end of June, it was just like one thing after another in the world of real estate and finance. Like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. And the news is just coming so fast that when I compile it together, it's like, this is this is way too much. And even though some of the dates of these articles uh, um, might not correlate or correspond to one another, I'm breaking them up into, into different categories, whereas before I would break them up into like local markets, um, anything related to interest rates and such. This time I'm going to break them in terms of uh, uh, the, the emotional category, so to speak, like in, in like the good, the bad and the ugly. But the way I'm structuring it is I'm going to get the bad out of the way first, deal with the good, then deal with the ugly. And after I get through the ugly, you'll come to realize why I'm going to focus another episode on on the news that's happened in the month of June, but for a specific market, mostly one that hits me closest to home, and that's the Anaheim market. Because there's been a lot of stuff happening here in Anaheim, and the, the media portrayal of what's been happening here is a very big deal, and I want to set the record straight. So I will devote uh, an entirely localized episode for real estate news in the following episode after this one. So this one is more national news, but I will highlight news from certain re- uh, market regions that uh, that will tell you that the bad that I'm setting up first, as bad as it sounds, doesn't apply for everywhere. Like it's not one size fits all. See, uh, here's an example I always like to use. When you see a, a statistic that said, whoa, the medium price of a, of a home that's sold is a million dollars. Okay, what was the sampling to say it was $1 million? Let's say they only measured two homes. And they say the average sale of those two homes was a $1 million. Like that's the median price. Like, wow, that's actually pretty inspiring. And then you see the data because you, now you dig into it. One house sells for $1.5 million. The other one sells for 500000 how is the medium a million dollars? Because you take, you, know, you take the average of both after adding them. You divide it by two. There you go. You got your average. So does that mean that every house was selling for a million bucks? No. And was every house selling for um, that high? No. So it's, it, there's different spectrums. You got to really look at the sales data when you take these headlines into account. Um, 
And uh, so just keep that in mind because some of these are going to be such a doozy that in the first two minutes you might think, that's, that's it, forget it, I'm not getting involved in real estate whatsoever. And then you'll see when you listen to the entire episode, it's like, holy smokes, man, I got to get in on this. And you'll see why. But first, I want to start off with an article that will shake, if you haven't heard about it yet, that will shake my colleagues to the core. And for you as a consumer, you might like to hear this. I'm on both sides of the camp on this issue, um, and I'll explain why. Here's the headline from MarketWatch.com. Hidden realtor commissions could be next. Housing market domino to topple as government probes MLS. So what exactly is this? This is from June 15th. Okay, another potential blow has been struck against the long-standing way in which real estate agents get paid. In April, the Department of Justice wrote to CoreLogic, a real estate software provider, demanding that the company turn over information on how it works with the multi-listing service, MLS, the locally owned and operated compilations of real estate data. The civil investigative demand concerned potential antitrust law violations, Justice said, specifically practices that may unreasonably restrain competition in the provision of real estate, uh, residential real estate brokerages services in local markets in the United States. This is not the first time that justice has taken an interest on in how competition gets stifled in the real estate, in the residential real estate market. And the April demand joins another high-profile legal case, a lawsuit filed in March, which charges that real estate brokerages and their industry groups conspire to keep agent commissions artificially high. Of course, I take great issue with that because it's questioning a lot of the validity of the work that we do. The thing is, just like the property data I gave you at the beginning of this episode, the same applies to an agent. There are some agents that are better than others. Absolutely. There's some that go the extra mile, other ones that don't even get off their chair. So do both deserve the same commission rate? No, but that's up to you to, as a, as a seller, because the seller is the one that negotiates with the, with the agent, to negotiate the commission. Because if they're bringing value proposition to, um, to your uh, transaction, then they got, they're trying to earn that commission. Whereas others are just like, ah, yeah, I'll settle for this much because that's, that's what I always charge. You know, that's not how it, it should be. But the point is that from the outside looking in, um, the consumer is probably really glad about this. What's, uh, what, why my realtor colleagues are really concerned is because their livelihood, their way of life could be destroyed. Not necessarily because like, oh, what's the Justice Department going to find? No, not necessarily that. The ones that are complaining about this are the competitors to the MLS. And I, I actually already covered this uh, to some extent in one of my earlier episodes from the beginning of the show, actually, that I recommend you check that out. And uh, I was addressing, uh, it, particularly in the episode, the value of the mortgage, uh, the value of the real estate broker. Check that one out where I take on um, this subject head on and in detail about, uh, um, about the value of a broker, what's brought onto the, uh, to, to the table when um, these things are, are discussed, and what ultimately entails in the role of a broker. Because this is not mentioned here. The ones that are really complaining are the competitors that cannot access the real estate data so they can market better their product and service because they're trying to undercut what is being sold by somebody else. But here's the thing. It's, they're trying to take credit for someone else's work. Like when you really think about it. Someone did the effort to compile all this data. And this other guy says, I want in on that data. Yeah, but you didn't do any of the legwork. It doesn't matter. It, I'm, I should be privy to that because I'm working in the same field as you are. 
He's like, no, unless you're paying for it. Oh, no, I don't want to pay for it. It's like, okay, so now we're at odds here. So those are a sampling of the things that happen in the background that's not mentioned at all in this article. But it's something for you to keep in, keep in mind. This issue is not going away. There are people that really want to, um, uh, I guess, modernize real estate uh, transactions and streamline things and bring them to... Uh, uh, to a more supposed reasonable rate because technology supposedly makes everything more affordable. Okay, all right, that's this article. I want to move on from, from this one and move on to this headline from the AP because this is where the, the, uh, the bad news really begins if you read it for what it's worth. U.S. new home sales fell 7.8% in May. Dun, dun, dun. Sales of new U.S. home sales slumped 7.8% in May as sales plunged in the pricier northeastern and western markets. It's like, oh, snap, really? Lower mortgage rates in a healthy job market have yet to unleash more home buying. Sales of new homes plummeted 33.9% in the west and 17.9% in the northeast. New home sales rose 4.9% in the south and 6.3% in the midwest, which are generally more affordable markets. The median sales price, ah, here we go again. The median sales price of a home fell 2.7% from a year ago to $308,000. Still, there are signs that sales could recover. Sales of existing homes, which are the bulk of the market, rebounded in May. They increased 2.5% to a seasonally adjusted annual rate of 5.34 million. Evidence that the lower mortgage rates might ultimately improve buying. That's how the article ends, but there's like this big old ad in between um, the paragraphs. So if you miss it, you actually will miss the actual good news of this article. But therein goes my point that at least they mention what regions is where it's been affected. It says Western markets uh, sells a new home slumped. Uh, and I can tell you that our affordability housing crisis here in the West is due to the fact that we don't have new inventory to turn over. It's only existing inventory. So what are we really dealing with here in terms of this data? What Western markets are we actually talking about when we don't have new homes to sell? So just taking, uh, just bringing that up. Okay, next article over. This one's from um, from Bloomberg. I think this is from Canada because it's .ca. It says U.S. home flippers are cashing out before the price before the profits get slimmer. Oh snap! Shrinking returns, profits on home flips fell to an almost eight-year low in the first quarter of this year. Uh, there's a graph that shows this in the article is actually really short, so I'll leave it at that. But uh, um, yes, it's saying that they're trying to just just basically cash out before it's too late. So I'm like, oh, snap, even the home flippers are, are getting out of it. I've been saying for a long time that the, the, the flip market's been dead for at least a decade. You know, so it's going to come back. It's just that uh, this making it seem like, see, it's, it's, it's done for. It's like, no, 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 no. And now let's get to the worst of these news articles about... Um, about trying to turn people off to real estate investments or any um, high capital um, um, expenditure. This is from Yahoo Finance. Consumer confidence drops to the lowest level since September 2017. The conference board's consumer confidence index tumbled to 121.5 in June, dropping from a downwardly revised reading of 131.3 in May and snapping three consecutive months of improvements. June's results missed consensus expectations for a reading of 131.0 according to the Bloomberg compiled data and marked the lowest level in nearly two years. Oh, snap. So the market must be doing bad. Okay. That's the bad of the bad. Okay. 
we're going to move on to the good news before we get to what is I consider the ugly. And it has nothing to do with economics like this. Now let's rebuttal all this. This all happened within the same month, uh, within days, okay? This is why I'm telling you that some of these headlines make national news and those that are highlighted are usually the bad news. What about the good news? Let's move on to that. This is from CoreLogic, the very... Uh, um, software that's been is to, is being taken to task by the Justice Department. So this is like the most real of the data that you can get. I'm not going to dive all into this because it's mostly graphs. But I'm just going to get through the abstract. Share of homes selling at or above list price returning to normal levels. 31% of homes sold at or above list price in March 2019. So 10 years after the financial crisis, the National CoreLogic Home Price Index has exceeded its pre-crisis peak and continues to grow by a slower pace. But it's still growing. See, that's the point. So this isn't mentioned anywhere in the national headlines. And this is straight from CoreLogic that's giving you the, the most real real estate data that you can get. So that's what I mean, that when you hear these negative articles, uh, what about these articles? That's still saying yes. It is. It's like taking a, um, um, like a headline, for example. It's like, oh my gosh, the budget was slashed by 5%. And then you read the details. No, they got more than last time. They just didn't get as much as they were hoping to get this year. So that's basically the essence of, of this headline um, or, or the articles that are thrown out there because the negative news is what tries to attract the, the attention. And it's been proven um, through, through science and studies that uh, the negative news on internet gets more clicks than the positive news, go figure. Unless the news about dogs or cats, so whatever. Anyway, next article over. This is now from Yahoo Finance. Rebuttaling one of the consumer confidence articles. U.S. housing starts stabilized as building permits edge up. And this is interesting because that's actually one of the better articles that I recommend people to read. Because um, it's, uh, it's talking about the, the U.S. home constructions fell in May after April, reading that was stronger than initially reported, signaling stabilization in the market amid lower borrowing costs. The, um, the key insights, where is it, where is it, where is it? I just had it here. Uh, let me see, let me see, let me see. Oh, there it is. It's in the next article over because this one's saying that the U.S. housing starts stabilized as building permits edge up. This is like a two-part thing. Um, I'm still going to link to both articles because this one's talking about new construction itself falling in May um, after April, reading that it was stronger than initially reported. Uh, and of course, with the news that uh, all new home sales fell 7.8% in May and correlating with this, you see now construction slowing down. Not necessarily. This is from this, uh, another Yahoo Finance article published just two days after um, diving deeper into that information, stating it's a recap of the housing reports. So this is it. 1.29 million building permits were issued. Construction started on 1.27 million new homes. 1.21 new, uh, million new homes finished in May. And building permits edged up. They were down for May, but they edged up. And 3.7% increase in building permits for single-family homes from April to May. So the key takeaways are this. Uh... 1.26 million is a relatively low housing start. The modern historical norm for housing starts is between 1.3 and 1.5 million. So is this a sign of a housing slump? No. An increase in building permits and a notable increase in permits for single-family homes is a healthy economic indicator. Thank you very much for clarifying that. These are the same 
Yahoo Finance um, articles, essentially, just two days or three days apart from publishing because everybody's reacting to the bad headlines and then they missed the good news. So then someone else saw the data and said, no, 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 our reporting that looked negative is actually positive. So that's why it was published. And I'll link to these articles as well at www.theandresiglobal.com where you can read all these things for yourselves. And now here's the next one from the Mortgage Bankers Association. May new home purchase mortgage applications increase 20.1% year over year. Hold on, hold on, hold on. We're saying that less inventory is moving and yet there's 20.1% more buyers now than there were a year ago. Think about that. That means people are ready to buy. And that's all I have to say about that. You can read this one for yourself as always. Remember, in the resources section of that website. Now we're getting to something more regional specific. This is part of the good news, okay? This is from a local area. This is for San Antonio, Texas. San Antonio housing market staying hot. Affordability and quality of life are helping to keep San Antonio's home sales sizzling. Single family homes were strong in May. The San Antonio Board of Realtors is reporting that home buyers closed on more than 3,600 homes. That's an increase of 10% than the same month last year, also attracting more family and businesses, low mortgage rates. The median price of a home in San Antonio is now $238,000, up 3% from last May. Sabre says inventory is low and that is helping to drive prices up. Thank you very much. Next article over is now the ugly. So just to wrap up the good. So as you see, we get into something more regional and we're actually digging into the data. All that's bad news isn't bad when you look at the details. It's positive. And when it's region region specific, you'll know more especially when you have an area that has low inventory. When there's low inventory and too many buyers, that tells you there's demand. And that's why that article about, oh, new construction homes fell in Western markets. Well, which Western market? Please be specific, because we're not building any new homes over here in California, or at least not in Orange County and uh, and Los Angeles, uh, maybe San Diego. But the thing is that uh, a lot of the construction and infrastructure that is happening right now is dense population housing, a.k.a. apartments for rent, not sales. So what new homes are we talking about here? So therein goes my point that we need to be specific about the data that we're reading. Now, again, uh, I don't want to delve a lot more into the the details of everything or else this episode is going to be really, really, really long and I don't want to stretch it too far and I want to be wrapping it up pretty soon, especially since I'm going to get through the articles that might make me go hurl. Here is an article. This is an opinion piece from the dailynews.com. The title is Los Angeles wants to tax landlords for vacant units. There are... The argument for this is so stupid. Now, this is an opinion by somebody who's bringing attention to this issue. Because when you think things in the city of Los Angeles couldn't be any more dysfunctional, this happens. The city council is seriously kicking around a new tax on property owners for leaving homes vacant. I like what the article says. Think of it as the tombow debt tax. Either landlords either light on for you or they'll pay up. This is uh, an an homage or or a tribute to the Motel 6 ads from yesteryear. Uh, So City Councilman Mike Bonin, Marquise Harris-Dawson, Paul Koretz, and David Rayu have asked city staffers to come up with a plan for an empty homes penalty or vacancy tax. No bed in the city should be empty when people are being forced to sleep on pavement. 
Empty home penalties encourage landlords to keep people housed, and they help raise needed funds to create more affordable housing. This is an important tool for addressing one of the root causes of homelessness in LA, and it's a step we desperately need to take, Bonin said. Look, I'm not going to go into the entire article. I'm just going to stop right there because this is the solution that every progressive comes up with. When there's a problem, tax it. Taxes are the only solution they can come up with. It's like those scams that you find, like uh, um, like, like GoFundMe or or like Kickstarter. Hey, I got this thing. I need money to do it. Or like, oh, this so-and-so that you don't know from somewhere else that you never heard of um, needs money for this one thing that nobody knows what it is. So they need a lot of money. Okay. And people donate. And then what becomes of it? How do you know that wasn't a hoax? How do you know that wasn't Photoshop? This is blatantly in your face. When have taxes worked? No one taxed themselves out of poverty. It's never happened. Lyndon B. Johnson declared war on poverty. He spent billions of dollars. And we have more poor people today than we did back then. So what's that tell you? Oh, because they didn't spend enough. Oh, man. Let's move on. Because this only gets worse. This is from the Wall Street Journal. And I can't read the whole thing um, for obvious reasons. It's, it's a paywall. So you can look it up yourself. And if you're signed on to Wall Street Journal, you'll be able to get in. But the headline is New York passes overhaul of rent laws, buoying wider movement to tackle the housing crunch. Increased safeguards for tenants come as other state legislators consider limiting rent increases. And that's the thing that to everybody, the housing affordability, they say, oh, yeah, it's obvious rent caps. And yet we have so many examples of, of major cities with rent control where it hasn't worked. And it's been there for decades. And I've already went through this through the month of June. Check out my episodes addressing rent control so you know yourself. This is just more overreach by state legislators to take away your personal property, your property rights. And the thing is that long-term tenants sometimes uh, might feel that the place they are renting, not owning, they feel they're part owner of it because they've been there for so long. So they'll have a grievance. I have a say in this. I have a say in this. Uh, yes and no. It's not your property. You can't do anything with it. You can't transfer it. You can't sell it. You can buy it and then do something with it. But no. And the thing is, this story isn't going away. It's just going to get progressively worse and worse and worse Especially when the, uh, the, the, the media are vilifying landlords, not just commercial landlords, but the, the, the individual landlord, the one person that has just one property. And they're just as equally bad in the eyes of everybody by virtue that they are renting to somebody else instead of basically giving them some kind of, uh, um, uh, what is it, like, oh my goodness, I'm drawing a blank here, <laughs> but uh, it's it's. More like uh, welfare. There we go. Welfare. I was thinking wages. Why wages? No, welfare. All right. This is from these next two articles are from splinternews.com. I haven't heard of them up until this point. And I got to say, I'm so glad I haven't because just reading these articles just like, ugh, it's, uh, it just really tightens my gears. This article is titled, this is an, a res, direct response to New York um, passed the, uh, the rent control um, overhaul. This, this, the, the title of this article says, Rich People Sad, Hook It To My Veins. 
The article goes on to say, rich people are always winning in politics, not just when they run for office, but also when they want laws passed and bills defeated. In rare, in the rare instances where they do not win, they are shocked that they did not win, and it is very funny when it happens. Case in point, the New York Times article about the dismay of the titans of real estate in New York after the announcement of a deal between New York Democrats on a bill protecting tenants. They are so very sad. Boo-hoo! This is uh, um, the, the, the quote that they borrowed from the New York Times. It says, I'm in shock. I think many of us in the industry are in shock, said James R. Wetch, president of the firm Lee & Associates and a board member of the Real Estate Board of New York, the industry's leading trade group. It's a lot worse than we anticipated. Then now we go back to the article of, the, of supposed journalist writing. Boo-hoo, biatch. Get back to the Upper East Side and have a whatever about it. So it's... This is this is supposedly reporting, ladies and gentlemen. At least on this show, when you hear me talking about things, I'm giving you an informative, fact-based opinion, and also from experience, because I myself am a property owner. Um, I also have tenants. I deal with the world of construction and in the world of real estate. I do construction management, and I'm also a broker. And I've been in this in this industry for about. Well, I grew up in it, but I really started working in it since 2002. So I've seen so much and been a part of the ugly side, the ugliest side of real estate you can think of. These articles are passed around like news. This is not news. This is an opinion posing as news. And they go and they follow up this article I think it's a different writer. Yes, a different writer. The first one was Libby Watson. The next one over is Sophie Weiner. Same website. Uh, Lenders are still crying about New York's new rent control laws. And they just uh, just just start basically parading the um, the landlords and mocking them for uh, for feeling terrible about it because they believe that the people have won a great victory. To these writers, I tell them, go to a rent control area. Anywhere especially here in Los Angeles. Walk any of those neighborhoods and tell me which of those places you would love to live in. And once they come back with the answers, I'll say I told you so. And it's on that note that I don't want to end this episode on the downer. Um, I've been, I saved this article that uh, recently published on, in, published on my wife's birthday, uh, June 24th, um, that uh, we need something um, happy. And finally, we got something happy. And of all places, this article comes from The Hollywood Reporter, which is known more for entertainment. Uh, and uh, the episode is called How Malibu Has Embraced Optimism After the Devastating Fires. Because uh, there was big fires that destroyed so many homes up there. Um, and this article is, is shedding light on so, something that's uh, uh, very positive. Uh, sales prices are up in the Tony Beachside community, but only three permits have been issued to reconstruct homes destroyed by November's destructive flames. And the true Malibu locals, they'll be back because they know it's a price you pay to live in paradise, says Robert Morton, the longtime producer turned Compass real estate agent, the Emmy winner, um, late show with David Letterman, who transitioned to becoming a residential broker back in 2015, is seated on the deck of one of his marquee listings, the Broad Beach home of Friends producer Kevin Bright, priced at $14 million, and he's weighing the impact of November's um, Woosley fire on his old neighborhood, uh, Morton called Malibu home for two decades before moving to Venice Beach in 2018. The fire was so tragic, but every society has its burdens. And when you look at a day like today, and well, he says gesturing to the blue skies overhead and the beach below to finish the thought. 
home to scores of entertainment A-listers over the past half century, including uh, Ron Mayer and John Stainham. Uh, Malibu Beachfront has been kind to Morton as of late. In early June, he said actor Stephen Dorff, uh, I hope I pronounced it right, uh, mid-century modern home a few miles south of La Costa Beach. He sold it for $7.5 million. So it's it's happy to know that uh, that uh, from tragedy can uh, can come hope and there is hope and optimism as particularly in the area of Malibu after the Woosley fire. So it's a positive sign. So that's why I wanted to share this because after going over the bad, the good, and the ugly, I have to deliver some optimism because there's uh, just like this as the fire of, of rent control is spreading everywhere, but hopefully reason will triumph and uh, I have to believe. Uh, in, in the fellow individual that um, has a brain and they're able to look past their own biases to see um, the numbers for themselves because uh, we're all in this together. We honestly are. And it's not in the interest of anybody for the government to start taking people's property away or else uh, this is not the America that uh, was promised. This is a, a place that's just following the routes of every other felt socialist state. And I hope it doesn't come to that. And that does it for this episode of the Andrew Segovia Show. Um, I, if you haven't heard my announcement on YouTube, if you're not following me there, please go to YouTube channel. Um, the channel is called The Andrew Segovia. And it's, uh, you'll find me under the, uh, the, the hashtags The Andrew Segovia Show right there. Uh, you can uh, subscribe, hit the bell to be notified whenever I put up a video. But uh, I announced there, and I'm very proud and excited to finally be picked up by iHeartRadio. I don't know why it took so many months, but I am. So that brings the total tally of my show to be featured on multiple podcast directories too. And I'll ramble them off right now because this is where you can go to listen to my show. If you have Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music or Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, YouTube, Spreaker, Spotify, TuneIn, CastBox. You can listen to it on any of those directories or all those directories. That helps me. Yippee. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Segovia. Or on Twitter, underscore Andres Segovia. Because I couldn't fit the Andres Segovia into it. It's too long, apparently. Uh, yeah, that does it for this episode of the Segovia Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I'll see you on the next episode. Happy 4th of July, everybody.